The whole energy argument is, it doesn't take into account the physics and the engineering of, of how the energy is produced. Um, and it doesn't take into account the economic reality that we are always seeking out lower cost power. Hello there again from El Salvador. How are you all doing? Things are moving pretty fast here. And two days ago, I got to meet with the president, President Bukele, to discuss Bitcoin. And outside of the fact that the whole experience was entirely surreal, I was just super impressed with his understanding of Bitcoin and his goals for the country. I'm going to have more on this soon. Anyway, how are you all doing? Welcome to the What Bitcoin Did podcast, which is brought to you by Gemini, the only place I am using for buying Bitcoin. I'm your host, Peter McCormack. And today I've got an interview with my good buddy, Harry Suddock, to discuss Bitcoin mining and energy FUD. But before that, I do have a message from my show sponsors. And today we're going to kick off with my newest sponsor, Revolut. Now, as many of you know, Lloyd's TSB, my bank of the last 25 years, closed down all my accounts recently. It appears that they do not like Bitcoin. But Revolut reached out to me, and it could not have been easier to create an account. And most importantly, they like Bitcoin, making it easy for you to transfer to exchanges. And now Revolut are offering $20 or £20 to all new customers that complete three card transactions. It only takes a few minutes to set up and you can create a card and add it to Apple Pay immediately to get the cash in your pocket as soon as possible. But I would recommend you convert that straight to Bitcoin. Now this is a new relationship and I am working with the Revolut team to help them build a bank which is Bitcoin friendly. There is a lot to navigate but we are working very hard at this. If you want to find out more then please head over to revolut.com forward slash WBD to get your bonus. That is R-E-V-O-L-U-T dot com forward slash WBD. Next up, we have BlockFi, the future of Bitcoin and financial services, offering a number of products for Bitcoiners. Now, with a BlockFi interest account, you can earn yield on your Bitcoin. I have been a customer of this product for nearly two years, earning interest on my Bitcoin, and I love it. But also with BlockFi, you can get a Bitcoin-backed loan. You can borrow against your Bitcoin without selling, and they are imminently about to launch their Visa Rewards credit card with 1.5% rewards back in sats on all cards purchases. Now, if you're interested in checking BlockFi out, I recommend you do your own research and then head over to BlockFi.com, which is B-L-O-C-K-F-I.com. Next up, we have Ledger, the world's most popular hardware wallet. Now, a hardware wallet allows you, as a Bitcoiner, to take custody of your Bitcoin. Now, I have been a Ledger customer since early 2017, and I'm still using the same Nano S I bought back then, four years ago. And Ledger makes it easy for you to safely manage your Bitcoin using their Ledger Live software, which interfaces with your device. You can even connect your Nano S to your Android phone to manage your Bitcoin on the go. If you want to find out more, head over to ledger.com, which is L-E-D-G-E-R.com. And also, let's talk about Gemini, my exchange sponsor, who I am using exclusively for buying and selling Bitcoin. But I haven't sold a single sat through Gemini yet. I am only buying. We are in a good run right now. Now, I have been using the Gemini app for buying the dips, but I also set myself a DCA with twice monthly buys of Bitcoin, and I'm yet to see a better or easier interface for buying Bitcoin. With a streamlined trading view, you have access to all the tools you need to understand Bitcoin and start investing, all through one clear, attractive interface. If you want to find out more, please head over to Gemini.com, which is G-E-M-I-N-I.com. Okay, so onto the show today, and this one is long overdue. Now, ever since I got into Bitcoin, every few months or so, I noticed news articles from some of the mainstream media outlets saying stuff like Bitcoin now uses more energy than Belgium or Norway or whatever country it happens to be at that time. 
Without fail, these articles are baseless and lack understanding of Bitcoin and its energy consumption. But over the last few months, the FUD around mining has gone crazy. A lot of this sparked by everyone's favorite Bitcoiner, Elon Musk. It now seems that every news outlet and anyone with power or influence is spouting nonsense about this. It isn't that there is nothing to talk about here when it comes to Bitcoin mining, but the fact that most of these arguments are misinformed and based on untruth is what triggers the Bitcoin community. Bitcoiners have been pushing back against this narrative. Nick Carter wrote an amazing article, which I've linked to in the show notes, but the FUD really hasn't died down. So to address this, when I was in Miami, I asked Harry Suddock, the VP of strategy at Grid, to come on the show and go through absolutely everything from the ground up. Honestly, this conversation was well overdue. I've known Harry for a long time, and he is one of the best speakers on mining, but also how the energy sector works. I know you're going to love this. If you've got any feedback, you know you can reach out to me. My email address is hello at whatbitcoindid.com. Okay, let's get on with the show. What's up, Harry? How are you, Peter? This is long overdue. I know. When was it we first met? So we first met in New York uh, at... Uh, at some event, it was some consensus side event, and was it MCC? It was that week. That week, yeah. But it wasn't that. I forget. Was that so? That's 2019. I thought we met in 18. We might have met in 18. Yeah. Well, this is one overdue, dude. I appreciate you having me, what especially. Do? And th- this is the perfect come down from <laughs> the last five days of just mainlining Bitcoin everything. This is going to be the croakiest, most deep voice podcast I've done. <laughs> you and your cigars, <laughs> all the drinking. Honestly, I'm losing my voice, dude. But listen, the timing's great. As we know, you are responsible for the end of the earth. You are burning the planet and boiling the oceans, and it's time for you to apologize for your sins. You know, I am I am always on the hook for some good repenting. Uh, you know, thank, thankfully, we don't think that uh, that the facts bear that out. But but we live in a post fact world, so <laughs> guilty as charged. <laughs> Dude, I don't know anyone who gets as much shit as miners. Uh, maybe maybe Hamas. Yeah, well, it, it, and I think that it's it's not just the shit quantity. Um, it's also the the broad and mainstream digestible nature of the critique. Right, so it's it's not just that, you know, Bitcoin bad. It's it's that there are uh, constituencies well outside of sort of Bitcoin or Bitcoin adjacent people who find this as the topic for them to get to to weigh in. This is their you know this is their moment in the sun to come in and and try to dunk on Bitcoin. Um, you know, it's not about terrorism or money laundering anymore. It's the mining is bad. It's boiling the oceans. It's bad for people, it's bad for society, and and we need to stamp out these rats. I mean, they're fucking lazy. Let's be honest, these journalists, are, they're fucking lazy. Uh, you know, I, I, I'm, not, I'm not willing to critique their work ethic, but what I am willing to do is say they have terrible incentives. Well, I am. I think they're fucking... Look, the information's out there. There's plenty of information out there. If you do the research... I mean, I do think the topic's worthy of discussing. I'm not a climate change denier. Some people would say that is uh, uh, insulting to call people deniers. But I personally believe we do have a climate issue. Uh, I think it's worthy of discussion. But at the same time, we need to be fair and balanced. But it was cool because we were at Beefsteak Beefsteak the other night with the senator. Mm -hmm. As you said, eating meat with our hands with the senator. Um, 
and we had a conversation about it. And, and what was most fascinating about that conversation is actually, and what I want to cover today mainly, was you explaining how the energy sector works. Because I've got no idea, especially in the US. So I kind of that's where, where I really want to start. But let's just tear it up. Explain to people who you are, what company you work for, what you do, so we understand your credentials. I, I appreciate it. So, yeah. so uh, I'm Harry. I, I'm the VP of strategy for Grid Infrastructure, which is uh, an American-based industrial-scale Bitcoin mining operation. Um, we've developed uh, a fully vertically integrated portfolio of mining ops uh, right here in, in the beautiful U.S. And, you know, what we believe is that, you know, number one, mining Bitcoin is an incredibly exciting and powerful uh, business to engage in, you know, both, uh, you know, as an economic actor, but also because of the, of the things that it can bring to the table for a community and for the world. And, you know, what we've, what we've done to date is we've spun up, you know, several of these, We've got a pipeline uh, of opportunity in front of us that that we're in the midst of executing on. That's going to bring that you know well into the double digit numbers of sites. Um, you know, and we we've assembled a team of you know, in, in my opinion, you know, the best uh, operators in the world. You know, there's a lot of people out there who are who are building businesses these days. You know, in the in the Bitcoin industry, and what's been so exciting about sort of this cycle has been the the folks who have said their traditional industry is not as exciting as bringing their skill set to Bitcoin. Um, and we definitely feel like we're the beneficiary of, of similar forces. So, you know, our director of operations ran IT for an Air Force base. Our VP of energy procurement spent 30 years at a utility um, and 10 years, uh, you know, at, at a university before that. So, you know, these are deeply credentialed people in totally other areas. And so what that's let us bring to the table is that, you know, we're, we're in pursuit of true vertical integration for mining, which means having the leading opportunity to understand energy and energy markets, because that's the key input having, you know, deep Bitcoin expertise, which, which I try to bring to the table as best I can. Um, but having other skill sets like network engineering, electrical engineering, um, you know, a, a really strong recruiting and HR function, you know, bringing, you know, blue collar jobs to the high technology world. Like the, these are the things that mining is all about, um, which, you know, doesn't get, you know, the kind of coverage that a, a boiling the oceans type of story will, but, you know, when a community uh, is zoned to have a new hospital built there, and this is this is you know a, an anecdote that we're in the midst of working through right now, uh, they were zoned to have a new hospital get built in their area. There are seventeen thousand energy customers, you know, house to house in that in that utility's jurisdiction. They're going to bring a hospital that's going to double the amount of energy that that region pulls down. Uh, we can all agree that hospital, very worthy use of electricity. No, no argument there. They rebuild the transmission lines. They re and we're going to get into defining what all these things are. They rebuild the transmission lines. They build a new substation that's bigger, that can handle the additional load. And after they finish doing all of that, the hospital project falls apart. So they're left having invested millions of dollars in this area to, to have this large customer, to attract this large customer. They now have to pass that cost back to those 17,000 households unless they can find another use for that energy. So what did they do? They called our VP of energy management. They said, we've got an overbuilt supply here. 
if we do not bring in a large-scale energy customer, these costs are going to get passed back to households that definitely do not have the budget to support rising energy prices. So we have this beautiful opportunity to come in, backstop this utility, provide a customer to come in on the back of this deal falling apart, and provide the backbone for this community and to continue to stabilize their energy prices for a decade to come. And so, you know, these are the stories about Bitcoin mining that that don't get to rise to the surface. It also so happens that that energy mix is over 60% carbon free. But that's also maybe besides the point, we'll get into all, all why that is and how this works. But, you know, the, the idea that industrial scale energy consumption isn't a, a fundamentally valuable thing for communities and for the world, um, it's just a misnomer. It just it just doesn't take into account what's actually happening from a boots on the ground perspective, you know, which is which is what I'm I'm so excited to dig into with you. Okay, I actually want to ask something on that. So, you said a hospital has been zoned. What explain to me what what was being built and the infrastructure there? Totally. So yeah. so I, I actually want to take a couple of clicks. Out okay. Okay. And and just talk about how energy works. Well, because my what I was thinking is well. Can't they just not use that excess energy? And and so this is the problem: is that we're not, you know it, we're we're living in the world of atoms, not the world of bits. Yeah. So to to build a hospital, you need to have a tremendous amount of energy available. So things like an MRI machine or an operating room or you know all of the functions that happen within the four walls of a hospital that provide you know life saving care. Um, those are all extremely energy intensive. And so if you're going to build a hospital, you need to have the energy to power that hospital in a stable and reliable fashion available in close, relatively close proximity. So that means that when you think of how uh, the energy system is, is designed, there's an energy generation point, you know, call that just a big turbine that spins, forget how it spins. Then it spits out electrons. Those electrons get transported at a very, very high voltage to try to uh, minimize the amount of loss that happens. And then they get dropped down to, you know, what's called a substation. And the substation transforms those electrons into a consumable voltage. And so those consumable electrons then get transmitted the quote unquote last mile to the hospital. So imagine that you want to add, you know, another you know, and I'm going to use, you know, words like megawatts here. So, uh, you know, 10 megawatts is like a big hospital campus. They, wa- they want to zone in another 10 megawatts to that region. That means potentially, and in, in this case, actually, upgrading the transmission lines. So moving the energy from the power plant to the substation, you need more capacity. Using the substation to step down that additional capacity, you need another transformer. And then when you want to bring it out to the last mile, you need to zone all of that other constituent energy um, transmission to be able to handle the additional capacity that's all being brought through. So that means, you know, three years of construction and development. That means, you know, five to $15 million of investment for a community of 17,000 is not a big tax base, is not a big, you know, robust, you know, metropolitan area. It's a beautiful rural, you know, slice of heaven as far as I'm concerned, but, you know, but it's hard to attract a project of that size and execute on it without taking significant financial risk to the community, um, which is what the utility did. I don't understand, by the way, about how any of this works. But, <laughs> but so once the, 
once the power is being sent, mm-hmm. can the substation store a certain amount, or is there just waste? Is it, it constantly? Is. is there like a constant stream that's going to houses? Yes, it's like a river. It is. It is a use it or lose it flow. Right. Okay. And then, so if there's excess, where? How is it lost? What, like what's? Yeah. So so there's a there's a difference between the load being uh, zoned and and developed. Yeah. And it being consumed. So the way that um, the way that this works from the utilities perspective is they think they have a clear enough line of sight on a customer. That customer is going to produce uh, margin, you know, profit margin for 5, 10, 15, 25 years. Those profit margins are then present valued to justify the investment in developing higher throughput infrastructure. So imagine you are in a house and the house has one bathroom and the pipes that come from the water main are, are big enough to power one bath, one bathtub, one sink, one toilet. And then you do an addition on your house and you build another two bathrooms in the addition. The water is not sufficient to get to all three of those bathrooms and run all the functions. So what do you do? You have to build a bigger interconnection in between the water main and the house. What happened in this case is that the upgrade to the water main, to the, to the transmission to the water main was done before the addition was completed. Right. And they woke up and there was no customer there to finish the job. So the use or lose it, we have a town of 17,000 people, let's say it's 10 megawatts, I don't know what they would require. So do they have to plan for slightly excess usage knowing there's wastage? Yeah, so this is another another fundamental truth about how the energy system works. You have to overbuild it. Yeah. It is a requirement to build more than you ever think will be consumed. So think about were you were you aware of the polar vortex that happened a few years ago? Is uh yes, of course, across the whole of the US. It's exactly. Like, like the film, it's like that film was like uh tomorrow day after tomorrow. Day after tomorrow. Yeah. Like it's coming. Like unbelievable extreme weather conditions. Yeah. So the energy systems need to be built to accommodate that and to be able to heat the homes and provide all of the normal sort of traditional level of function in that extreme condition all the time. And so there's a gap in between what the system is engineered for, which is good. You want to over-engineer this because you know energy fundamentally is a very valuable thing when you think about it in terms of quality of life. So you want to engineer it so that in the extreme cases, you don't lose access to it because, you know, things like grandma, grandma's uh, heater or, you know, you, the stove, you know, the, the core functions of, of life, you know, require energy density if you want to live in an advanced society. Um, you have to build the system to account for sort of the, the extreme case. What that means is that on an ongoing basis, there's a big gap in between what the system is built for and what normal consumption looks like. So there, there's traditionally been that gap, and, and that's about, you know, so, you know, if, if you hear terms like spinning reserves, which means, you know, let's say, you know, we've seen extreme conditions in Texas recently. We've seen rolling blackouts over the last number of years in California. Um, those are the reasons why you need to overbuild uh, energy production, transmission, and delivery um, is because you got to account for the worst scenarios, but you can't. You can't do so on a sort of flexible basis. You got to plan for it from the beginning 
and build it that way. But to go back to the use it or lose it point, you know, the choice, rec- you know, until recently, until really until Bitcoin mining has been lose it. Let's overbuild it. We're going to bake in some kind of, you know, waste variable and we'll all tolerate that and, and that'll be part of the cost passed back to customers. We'll come back to that because that's a really interesting point. Um, I just, a couple of things I just want to understand. So, for example, my house. Yes. When I turn on the light, uh, am I suddenly opening up and accepting power or is there a constant power being sent to me and if I'm not using it, there's what, that's where the loss is? The it's a it's an interesting way to think of the question because I'm trying what I'm trying to understand mm-hmm. is it, it it sounds to me just like the whole infrastructure is a network of rivers and streams and I'm wondering where the loss happens like you say there's thirty percent waste yeah. where is that thirty percent how is it being lost so so correct and and the the answer is with all things like this it's actually complex um, there's a few places that happens okay so in our model of power plant transmission delivery. There's a lot of loss that happens over over distance. Okay. So when you move energy over a long enough distance, you lose some of it. Okay. So an easy way to make a, a, a grid more efficient is to move the consumption closer to the generation. Okay. That's one piece of it. The other piece is that you're, you're exactly right, that there is this constant delivery and availability to you. There's some loss there as well. Um, the The thing I would challenge is, is are you defining loss as not using, of it not being used? Whereas I would say that I don't think any of it is lost because you always have it available to you. So yeah, but yeah, it's not being used. So it, I don't know how this works. Does it just like disappear into the clouds? How does it happen? The, the (laughs) electrons will, will dissipate over time and distance. Okay. Okay. So we can come to the, the excess part, Mm -hmm. um, because we can utilize the excess energy, and that's a good argument for Bitcoin. You, you know, wherever it's being lost, if you can have a mine, you can utilize that excess energy. Great. At the same time, there are mining companies who are just tapping into the grid, not using excess. We'll cover that as well. But I just I want to understand a bit more about the infrastructure before we get into the mining side of things. Can you explain to me how the grid itself works? Is there one central starting point? Are there multiple? Uh, uh, like how does how is that energy generated? How is it pushed into the grid? Like explain to me all of that. Totally. Um, so the the grid is an incredibly balkanized thing. It is very very segmented. And, and is, is that by the way? Is that going to be different in the US to the UK because you have the state system and each state is responsible itself, or do you have a national? Because we have a national grid. Yeah. Um, the the answer is that the physics and the design are very similar. The segmenting and the market structure and the delivery structure is a little different. So, and and let's use the US just as a, as a starting point because um, I'm more familiar with it. But the, the way that it works here is that there's a number of different marketplaces that are kind of collage patchwork together. So ERCOT, is in the news all the time right now. Um, that's the Texas grid, and that's a deregulated market. Um, there's other merchant markets. There's other ones that are that are fully um, that are fully regulated markets that are you know federal utilities or uh, or state uh, utilities um, that that drive the market dynamic, which is a patchwork. Um, there's also interconnection in between markets. So, you know, when you sign a contract with a utility. 
that utility has an obligation to provide you the power. Let's say that the utility can't generate its own power to give to you. That doesn't make the obligation go away. That's when they have to engage with their interconnection agreements that they have with other markets. So California, great example of this. Right now, California imports a tremendous amount of their power. Why? Because they can't make good on their commitment, their their contractual commitments to deliver that power from sources that they are generating that are that are natively generating in their grid. So what they're forced to do is import it. And and they are they importing from Washington, Utah, Arizona, like exactly next door states. I mean, how far out can they import it? Because it, can it travel coast to coast? You can you can move energy about five hundred miles. Five hundred miles. About okay, okay. So border states. Yeah, you you know you're not you're not pulling anything from from New, New York. York. Yeah. Or Florida over to California, you're you're really looking at that adjacent line of states, um, and and you're seeing really significant power imports. Um, we're going to get into why the types of energy generation drive those import behaviors um, because it's re- it's actually really important um, because not all energy is generated the same way by the same types of sources. So, you know, to so so now we know that there's a patchwork of energy markets that are responsible for delivery and have sort of these two-sided agreements. One side of the agreements are with each other to buy and sell in between the markets. The other one is with their um, with their constituents, where they have agreements to sell power to the people who live there. Um, some of those are, are monopolies. Some of those are open markets. So you see a, a big range of those market types. But the, um, the way that energy is generated, transmitted, and delivered is all kind of the same structurally. Okay. Okay. So California, let's use that as an example. Will they have a single central starting point for energy and that distributes across the state? It's again, it's a patchwork. Wow, okay. So it's a it is a it is a network of of you know nodes and and spokes, basically. Okay. And across the country there are energy creators? What would you call them? Generators? I would, I would call those energy generation. Are they all private or is there state? Total mix. Okay. So we have renewables. Mm -hmm. We have coal. Mm -hmm. We have nuclear. Mm -hmm. Solar. Mm -hmm. Within the renewable. So Okay. So say wind, hydro, solar under renewable. Mm -hmm. We have coal. Mm -hmm. We have, do we have gas? Natural gas. Natural gas. Nuclear. Nuclear. Anything else? Um... There's a little bit of like biomass okay. that happens that falls under renewables. There's wind. Do you say wind? Yeah, wind. Um, and uh, and then there's geothermal, but we don't do a lot of that here. Okay. Let's start with private companies. They can go out and generate energy, and they sell that into the grid. Yes. So if I was a, I don't know, private energy generator, say I built a wind farm, I go to the grid to sell it to them? How does that work? Yeah, so so that's where you have to start interacting with energy markets. Okay. So, and, and, you know, each of them, and you know, it's it's a very American way of doing things where, you know, it's sort of a, a, depends on where you are, depends on how you do it, depends on the rules. So if you wanted to go and build a wind farm in Texas, ERCOT is pretty accommodating for net new development. You know the the rules are pretty transparent and easy to to opt into. So remind me who ERCOT are. 
ERCOT is the um, is the Texas uh, grid entity. Okay. Um, so developing something in Texas is pretty is pretty easy. And and granted, I I haven't done it, so I can't tell you exactly how easy it is. But you know, from from the way that the rules are laid out, it's easier to to develop net new generation in Texas than it is in let's say, I don't know, Maine. Different market. You got to you got to check the right boxes. You know, energy is very regulated, and to be a federal energy generator, you need to get licensed. You need to go through federal approval processes. There's a lot of red tape and bureaucracy around that. Um, so it's not as simple as like, hey, I'm going to start a startup that generates energy. Okay. Okay. Understand. Okay. So, so I apply. I get up my license. Mm-hmm. Find the land. I build my wind farm. I suddenly have this supply of energy. How do I sell it? There's a few methods, um, depending on the market that you're in. Um, you can sell into an open market. So some of these are just, there's a there's a day ahead or an hour ahead price for the energy that people are bidding on. There's lots of trading infrastructure around, around this. So, you know, people at a, de- at a Goldman Sachs de- energy desk are bidding on your energy. And so it's your job to deliver the commodity that they've bid on. And so there's a very very open market, liquid marketplace for actual physical energy. But I can only, I only want to be selling it to somewhere within 500 miles. And they they understand understand that. And they're broke. What they're doing is they're brokering in between you and someone within that radius who's who ends up on the other side of that energy trade. Who is on the other side of maybe it's an auto manufacturer. Maybe it's it's somebody who has an agreement with that with that energy market to buy power. So, I as an individual customer of the house, I don't have to because the you the, end, the you end up getting bundled. Yeah, you, but but if I'm if I'm Tesla with my gigafactory in Austin, I have to go and buy that energy. You, you it is it is significantly advantageous for you. To, to for you to buy the energy in that way because you'll get a cheaper rate. You'll get a cheaper price. Right. Okay. Fine. So that's me doing that. But if I okay, so everybody I sell my energy to is a supplier to somebody else, or you or you're going direct, which is the other option. So the other way to sell energy is is what's called a PPA, power purchase agreement, and there are all sorts of these types of contracts. Um, but an easy one is, you know, Harry Mining and Pete generating energy are going to get into a bilateral agreement by which you agree to deliver the energy to me. I agree to buy it over, over a certain number of years at a certain price. Okay. So in that relationship, what about the actual transfer of the energy? Because obviously, say, say if I'm in Dallas and you're in Austin and I'm generating my energy you've agreed to buy an Austin. How does my energy get from my wind farm to your factory? Like that it must go in somewhere. Yeah. So and that's and that's when we talk about this idea of transmission. Mm-hmm. Your job as the energy producer is to step up the voltage, push the electrons into a transmission line. My job is to step the electrons down and pull it into a consumption level of voltage. Um, and we end up paying fees, which are in ERCOT um, in Texas, they're tariffs, which those tariffs go towards the funding of that transmission infrastructure. 
fine. But does it go into a, a grid and then get sent to you, or could I be building a direct line to you? You you could build a direct line to me. Okay. Um, that is a significant engineering undertaking. I might as well use the infrastructure that's already there. So yeah. who owns that bit of infrastructure? So ERCOT is a okay. consortium that owns that. And so do I, as the energy supplier, have to pay them a rate? They will they will have a they will have an economic participation in what you make and and me as the payer, I will also be paying into what they do as well. Okay, fine. So then what becomes interesting is the energy mix, because let's say myself as a miner, and I want to forget the excess energy for now. Just say I want to spin up a mining operation in Austin. Uh, I can either go to you and buy it directly, or I can buy it you know, from another supply, like a you know another supply. I mean, I'm yeah, whatever. But I am just buying in the free market, the same as somebody who gets bundled as a retail customer, the same as Elon Musk for his factory, the same as Apple for their you know headquarters. Like I'm just going into the market and buying it. Why are miners expected to buy energy in a different way? Because nobody is looking at these car plants and saying, what's your energy mix, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, so it's it's a pretty challenging double standard, honestly, yeah. that that I think that I think that, you know, n- number one is, you know, the environmentalist in the room would say to you, oh, well, they are they are saying that to everyone. They are saying, you know, everybody's pushing to get a greener energy mix or a more renewable-focused energy mix. Um, where I think the difference is, is that miners are being expected to do that today. Everyone else kind of has some some leeway and some targets and, and you know, are working towards, you know, doing it, you know, over a kind of, you know, more reasonable, you know, transition timeframe. Actually, let me put it a different way. How many, how many different mining locations have you got? Three. Three. And all in the same state? No. Can you say which states? I can't. Okay, so that's confidential information. That's fine. Can you talk about how you guys buy energy? Absolutely. Yeah, talk to me about that. So we buy energy as aggressively based on price as we possibly can. So when you think of a mining operation, something between 80 and 90% of our monthly expenses is power. That means that if we're able to source lower cost energy, we are we are massively incentivized to do so. Yep. What that has meant is that we have spent the last three years scouring the planet for low cost energy. And we have explored a lot of different deal types, a lot of different structures. Um, we've we've landed on a few of them. You know, some of them are utility fed. Some of them that I'm more excited about are are co-located with energy generation. So the third thing that we didn't talk about in how you actually buy energy is just go build your Bitcoin mine on the same plot of land that the hydro dam is or that the wind farm is. And rather than ever stepping that voltage up to the transmission level, take it directly. And I guess there's a situation where if somebody's generating energy, they might not have sold it all. But they're still generating it. They can they reduce down how much they generate? Uh, they can curtail. Yes. Yeah. Um, it's it's uh, it's not the position you ever want to be in as the energy generator. So you know the the let and let's use a wind let's use a wind turbine as a really easy example. Mm-hmm. 
the turbine goes around once, generates, you know, 10 electrons using total hypotheticals. You know, the market in, in some regions is negative. So what they'll choose to do is just not to send the energy anywhere. It dissipates. So if they're able to strike a deal with, a, with another bidder on that energy who can tolerate some intermittent consumption, can use it some of the time, not, a, not the other part of the time, that's a really valuable customer to be able to bring to a market that isn't necessarily able to support the energy generation on a on a sort of broader basis and and you know that that's the other th- you know so i think bitcoin miners are special um and are a huge technological upgrade from from sort of the traditional consumers of electricity so we have two um two i think of as as energy superpowers the first one is that energy is like i said 80 to 90% of our monthly costs the second is that we can consume on an intermittent basis without without harming our business model, particularly. So if someone tells me I need you to shut off your miners 100 hours a year, 500 hours a year, we don't say no. We just say we need to reflect that in the energy price we pay. So we, you know, so what I, when I'm, when I'm looking to negotiate a power contract, you know, the way that I frame this is, I need you to get me the lowest possible cost that you know how to offer. I'm willing to negotiate on every other part of the profile of the load. How big are we going to build them? Are we going to build the mine? How often do you need that power back? Do you need us to, to you know, serve any other sort of creative uh, purpose within your energy mix or your system? Um, do you need us to split our facility into two and to go locate at two different points within the place? Great. You know, do you know? Are, are do we need to be able to to contribute to the security budget or or you know of, of these other pieces of the operation? We our job is to drive that energy price as low and competitive as possible and work with producers on every other variable. So, who are you negotiating with for for energy? Are you buying from the mar- from the market? Are you buying direct? Are you going to tell me it's a mix again as ever? The problem is that it, you know we live in an all of the above business. Yeah. So we um, we do deals directly with energy generation, you know, companies, portfolios of, of uh, who own energy generation assets. We do direct deals with them. We buy directly from the grid in a in a defined PPA, so a non market a non market rate, but just a, a direct bilateral agreement. Um, and we're exploring open market uh, energy bidding options as well now. So some of the your energy is coming straight from a, a supplier, and it's prob- probably a single source. Single like source. Single source, and then sometimes you're buying from the grid, and that's going to be a mix. Yes. And you you don't get to dictate that mix. You're just buying the best price possible. Exactly. But say if there was a coal-powered, what would you call it? A generator. What yeah, coal plant. Coal plant, and you could buy directly from them when it was the lowest possible. Would you, or are there? Do you guys hold ethical concerns about that? Um, I think the the line between between ethical and business um, continues to get blurrier yeah. in this strange world of ours. Um, we we believe that we can build the dominant leading Bitcoin mining operation and portfolio of operations without having to do a deal like that. But so the only time you're really buying uh, energy that comes from coal plants is because you're buying from the grid and exactly. they, they get part of their source from there. And, and let me put a finer point on it too, yeah. that that when we do a, a bilateral deal with an energy generator, 
those deals have been 100% renewable. Okay. That's, those, those are where we found the opportunity. You know, we believe that there is a responsibility, you know, to be good corporate citizens. We think that, you know, we think that the, the, you know, environmental conversation is one that's just beginning. Um, and we want to be part of the solution, not part of the, the challenge or the friction. Um, so we have a, you know, we have an internal belief that being, you know, aligned with carbon-free power um, is a positive for Bitcoin and for grid, uh, two eyes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, and, and, you know, the other, you know, the other part of it for us is that, you know, we think that there is such a massive amount of opportunity, um, in the carbon free space that we don't have to compromise on the other stuff. Next up, I talked to Harry more about Bitcoin's energy usage, but before that, I got a message from my amazing sponsors. Okay. Let's talk about Excess Wallet, who I have been using as my mobile and desktop wallet for Bitcoin for about six months now. And as you know, because I talk about this all the time, UX is super important to me. So when Exodus reached out and said they wanted to sponsor the podcast, I spent some time playing with the app and they crushed the experience. So I've been really happy to recommend it to my friends and family. And I was even using my Exodus wallet out here in El Salvador because I wanted to get some money out of an ATM and it was very easy to just transfer over. And actually, that was my first time using a Bitcoin ATM. Now, Exodus desktop gives you a way to secure and manage your Bitcoin in one beautiful application. And with their mobile wallet, you can send and receive safely using a QR code or address knowing that Exodus automatically checks all addresses for errors. So make sure you go and check it out at exodus.com or search for Exodus in the Google or Apple app stores. And next up, we have Casa, the safest way to store your Bitcoin. Now listen, forgotten passwords, SIM swaps, phishing attacks... These are all ways for you to lose your Bitcoin or have it stolen. But with Casa, you do not have to worry about your Bitcoin again because Casa is a multi-sig wallet that allows you to custody your Bitcoin but only move Bitcoin by signing transactions from multiple wallets, ones which you distribute into different locations and that is going to protect you from a range of mistakes, errors and vulnerabilities. Now, if you want to find out more about this, if you've got any questions, you can hit me up on Twitter or drop me an email. There is no better time to upgrade your Bitcoin security and get total peace of mind. You can find out more at keys.casa, which is K-E-Y-S dot C-A-S-A. And finally, today we have sportsbet.io. And as the Euros are on, I have teamed up with sportsbet.io to join legends Brett Lee and Danielson to make predictions during the tournament. And for the next round, I have predicted that England would score in both halves against Scotland. Now, if you want a chance to win prizes, then you can go and compare my picks against the other two and see who is right. If you want to find out more, please head over to sportsbet.io forward slash promotions and click on the Clubhouse Legends Picks links. That is S-P-O-R-T-S-B-E-T dot I-O forward slash promotions and click on the Clubhouse Legends Picks link. What is the, what's the general scale on pricing for energy generation, cheapest, most expensive is, and, and I know it's going to change depending on where you are, the size of the plant, but yeah, whatever, and like investment. But generally speaking, your experience, what is the cheapest, most is, is coal the cheapest, and that's why it still exists? No, I, I think hydro is the cheapest. Okay, um, from you know, from our experience, you know, single source hydro is the cheapest opportunity for energy procurement. Um, coal. Because why is why is that? So it, it's about the fixed cost to operate. So when you think of, um, a, let's just compare a coal plant and a hydro dam. Um, the hydro dam costs more to build than the coal plant. Um, but once the hydro dam is fully built, 
the fixed cost to operate. So really starts to boil down to regulatory cost, staffing, maintenance, um, and and basically the the debt service if it's a debt finance dam. A coal plant has significantly more ongoing costs, even if um, even if they're they're extremely competitive and low. When you you know when you spin a coal tur- a turbine with coal, um, you're able to get those unit economics lower at the dam because it's built at once, leave it in the water and let the river run. At, with coal, you're buying raw materials that are that are input the coal. There's still a significant amount of human labor there. There's still a significant amount of upfront cost. So it ends up being higher cost on a on a unit economic basis. But you got to understand that the the dam really is this massive upfront cost um, that that can kind of get things wonky a little bit. What about wind and, and solar? I, I think the conversation around wind and solar is really challenging. Okay. Um, I think that the and, you know, and to be fair, the technology is improving for both. But trying to support the energy grid with wind and solar as the predominant sources of of energy, it's really it's really hard to do. They don't generate energy in a particularly sort of stable, um, reliable fashion, and so you end up needing to rely on significant other pieces. Of, of energy generation to provide, you know, that contractually obligated, consistent availability. Um, you know, for example, solar produces energy 22% of the time. Nuclear pr- produces energy 99.999% of the time. They both emit just about the same amount of carbon. Mm. So there's significant drawbacks by using these other these other forms of energy. And those are physics problems, right? Like the sun is not in the sky on top of the panels all the time. It's actually only on top of them for a, a limited amount of time. You know, wind is a little bit different. The offshore wind load profile has been pretty encouraging from what we've seen. Um, it's it's a lot more competitive, you know, but it's still not getting to 99.9. It's getting higher. Um, and so it's about, you know, what... Uh, what parts of human quality of life are we willing to expose to variability in energy availability? Okay. Um, nuclear itself, cost, what's the cost base for that compared to others? So nuclear is, is similar to hydro in that it's really expensive to build up front. It'll cost, you know, hundreds of millions or billions of dollars. Um, but, you know, our, our, our perspective is that from a carbon-free energy standpoint, it's unbelievably compelling. Um, you know, if you look at the history in in um, France, you know they were able to largely decarbonize their energy generation mix in like twelve years. Germany has gone from you know being significantly nuclear focused to decommissioning nuclear plants for you know largely inexplicable reasons. Um, their energy price is now tripled, I believe, and. They're running, you know, one of the most highly emission, uh, you know, emission forward energy blends of anywhere in Europe. So nuclear, similar to Bitcoin mining, nuclear is one of these like superpower energy producers where you, you get to have your cake and eat it too. You get to have, you know, extremely stable baseload, consistent production. It's zero emission and you're able to generate at massive, massive scale. So to give you a sense of context, um, a nuclear turbine can generate somewhere between 1,000 and 1,500 megawatts of, of capacity. 
And they're able to do that on like a tiny fraction of the acreage that it would take to generate that with wind or solar, you know, easily. So you're able to get much higher quality energy baseload. You're able to get zero carbon emissions from that energy generation. And you're able to do so on a tiny footprint. It just sort of fixes all of the all of the existing problems with the with the wind solar piece of the pie. But unfortunately, the nuclear industry is suffering from significantly more onerous um, restrictions and regulatory uh, requirements, and it doesn't benefit from nearly as many subsidies, despite having a much more attractive energy profile. What is the issue, though? Is this uh, is this to do with nuclear waste and where it should be stored? Is it to do? Is it like Chernobyl PTSD, Fukushima? Is it Fukushima? Yeah, yeah. Is it PTSD from those? Yeah, it's a political argument. Really, the the pro, you know the struggle that the nuclear industry has has faced is um, is fundamentally a political one. Um, it's not it's not grounded in in. But the what sun. is the political argument? The political argument is that the environmentalists who have advocated to shut down nuclear do not have a fact based understanding of how nuclear waste is handled and how how dangerous or not it is. Um, it also speaks to the you know the the level of misinformation that's out there around or you know maybe it's just ignorance not just misinformation around how energy works you know the idea that we are going to migrate all of our energy generation and consumption to solar and wind does not acknowledge the basic physics of the problem so it sounds to me like you believe nuclear energy is the best opportunity to solve carbon uh, there, there is not, there is not an emission yeah. reduction energy environment. And keep in mind yeah. that of all of all emissions, the energy industry represents like seventy percent of them. So solving solving the you know the emission profile of energy of energy um, is uh, you know if if you're in the camp that that says that um, you know man made climate change is a result of, of of CO two emission, you have to solve the energy problem, which is fundamentally a coal problem, um, and so. You know, there's actually been more uh, emission reduction due to natural gas than due to all the other renewables combined. So the transition from coal to natural gas has actually, you know, outstripped the emission reduction um, that all of the other energy migration has has accounted for. You know, that doesn't mean that natural gas is the is the be all end all, but it's a great option when you can't compromise on quality of life. Like, we, and and I I love to return to this again and again and again. Energy density on a per capita basis is a huge, huge benefit to human civilization. When we as a society generate more energy per person, we are able to produce higher quality of life outcomes. And we in the U.S. have benefited from that tremendously over the last 50 plus years. The rest of the world hasn't gotten that opportunity yet. Um, and, and they deserve to live in an energy abundant world, you know, the same that we have um, and so, you know, it, it feels, you know, I, I struggle with this issue a bit because it feels like we're trying to pull the ladder up behind us. But what again is the, what is the baseline argument of, of environmentalists against nuclear? Is it, is it waste or is it fear of a, a meltdown? All of the above. All of the above. It, it is, it is unfounded. My, my assumption is that risk of meltdown, like let's look at the two that have happened, uh, Chernobyl was incompetence 
uh, and also a cover-up by the Russian state, as I believe. I, I mean, I'm not an expert. I'm going by this that very cool series. Okay, it was very good, but they, that's the, that was the implication. But either way, it was it was pure incompetence what happened. Uh, uh, um, but I'm, I'm assuming the regulations around nuclear and the procedures for managing a plant are very strict, and it's it's very safe these days. Fukushima was, it seems to me, it was a stupid place to build a nuclear plant on close to a fault line where you can have a, a, a have a um, tidal wave that can flood the plant. And nuclear has been less deadly on a per unit of energy production basis than every other than every other energy source. The, so the, the entire history of nuclear energy generation has been less deadly than this last year of everything else. Wow. It is a, it is an, un, you know, I, I struggle with the numbers that it is an unbelievably safe technology and that it is, it is an unbelievably reliable energy source. It, it is the idea that, that we shouldn't do this is like the craziest, craziest fallacy that's out there. But we live in a world where really bad ideas get funded and get, and get mainstream support. Like, you know, in, I'm a New Yorker and we decommissioned uh, Indian Point. Indian Point delivered 25% of the energy to New York City. And they said, no thanks, we don't want this fully funded, fully built, fully operational, zero carbon emission energy source because of inexplicable reasons. And so what's happened since then? There's been a migration to natural gas. The, the emission profile for the next 10 years is going to be significantly higher than uh, than it would have been if we just continued to running energy on Indian Point, but but the the problem is is that it's a it's a mixture of bad incentives and misinformation and and you know the environmentalism of the last thirty or forty years, you know, is operating from a position of of fear around things like Chernobyl, around things like you know like the Simpsons, you know, showing Blinky the three eyed fish and and having Homer be depicted as the nuclear operator you know, has done more of a disservice to the emission profile of the future than anything else I can imagine. Chat never even crossed my mind. Do we know any nuclear plants there are globally? Do you, have you got any, any awareness of that? I know, sorry, that's a bit of a... I'd have to pull, I'd have to pull up the data on it, but... Yeah, um, I mean, are we talking hundreds, tens, oh, thousands? Hundreds. hundreds. So we've yeah. got hundreds. So the cat's out of the bag with that anyway. If, if there is a risk with nuclear plants, we have hundreds of them already. Exactly. Okay. There, we, if we were going to face catastrophic nuclear energy risk, we would have seen it in the last 50 years. What about risks of attacks against nuclear plants? How real is that? That seems to me to be one, a, a bigger threat than a, another meltdown. Yeah, so that, that's, a, that's a really fair point. Um, I think that it, it, there, it does represent some risk, and there is, you know, there is risk there. I don't think it's quantifiably different than other power plant types of risk. You know, there's a lot of engineering um, that's gone into that. There's a lot of redundancy that's gone into those plants. Um, I'm actually friends with a couple of nuclear operators now. And so I've, I've been working to get smarter on all this stuff. Can we go and see a plant? Yes. Let's do it. Let's just go to a nuke. I want to go see one. It looks, have you ever seen, um, have you seen Star Wars? Of course. It looks like Tatooine. It looks like those. It looks like those, those, those bubble cities round bulbs, around. Yeah, yeah. With thing, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Awesome. With antennas sticking up, so it looks. It looks just like that. They're amazing. Yeah. Um, 
you know, human, you know, feat of human engineering that we've done this. And there's a, there's a lot of technology that's gone into this, this new wave of oh, Gen yeah. 4 Yeah, reactors. I was about to say, I've heard about this, like, for, nuclear 4.0, and they're smaller plants, so you can, mm-hmm. you can solve that distance problem. Exactly. Yeah, so, what's that all about? Tell me about that. So it's, I mean, it's, it's amazingly compelling, and, and we've, we've spoken with a few of those folks as well. Are they just, like, micro plants? What is it? Yeah, well, you know, you, you say micro, but it's important to talk about scale here. Yeah. So a big turbine, you know, we talked about, let's just call it, like, 1,100, 1,200 megawatts. Some of these smaller, um, you know, small nuclear reactors are like like eighty five megawatts. Um, you know, eighty five megawatts will power like three exa hash of Bitcoin hash. So it'll it'll power you know thirty thousand, forty thousand S nineteens. Right. So it's a lot of power. Um, even though it's not a massive, you know, centralized point of power, it can power a county, no question. Don't we put nuclear reactors in submarines? <laughs> yeah. So we're putting them in the ocean. We put them in the ocean. They yeah. work. I want. I, I mean, I've got no idea if they're the same. Kind so of this friend, this friend who I'm going to introduce you to, he was he spent 19 years in the Navy working on a nuclear submarine, uh-huh. and now he he does a nuclear power plant. Operation. We should just get him on the podcast. Talk about nuclear. Oh yeah, I'd be fascinated. Oh yeah, yeah. Introduce me to him afterwards. I will. Okay, I'm getting a good picture. So, so it seems to me that. What we're talking about here is there's quite a, you know, essentially a free market for energy production and buying as, as free as you can within, you know, the regulations of, of uh, the federal government, all the states individually, whatever. It seems to me is if people have an issue with uh, the emissions of uh, carbon into the atmosphere, they're not going to solve it by attacking Bitcoin mining. The only way to solve this is to do with how the energy market itself is regulated. So you have to potentially over-regulate coal, disincentivize it, and you have to, or you have to uh, incentivize in any way you want the production of nuclear plants and renewables and hydro. That's it's. It seems to me this is entirely therefore a political problem to solve. The free, uh, yeah. This this is this is an interesting area where. It would be a difficult conversations with those people who are anti-state, anti-government, but you won't get rid of coal production without some form of regulation unless everything else becomes fundamentally cheaper. Well, and and we need to we need to take into account that this is also not just a U.S. problem. Yeah, this is a global problem, and and so you know the U.S. represents about one you know a little less than one sixth of emissions right now. Really? And falling. Fucking greedy bastards. Like, what do you use by the population? We, we've generated 50% of global net worth. I mean, we can go we can go down this route if you want. <laughs> You've never won a World Cup. <laughs> you want to get competitive. But we've won two world wars. Wow. <laughs> I mean, we did that together. We were a team. That's true. No, listen, look, it, it's clearly it's clearly a global issue. I mean, I read something like, uh, is it China's building 600 coal plants this year? Some some some, some triple-digit number. That, some insane number. Yeah. Why don't they build nuclear plants? I mean, is, is, it, is it quicker to get to market with a coal plant? Yeah. Therefore, if you've got an energy issue, it's it, it building coal is faster. So so people aren't people aren't building coal plants because they hate the environment. People are building coal plants because it solves a dearth of energy quickly. Right. Um. And so you know, it's it, I mentioned that just it's it's sort of like pulling the ladder up. Where you know the U.S. was able to go through this very um, uh, uh, sort of like Gen One, Gen Two, Gen Three 
you know, energy market um, acceleration path where we went from, you know, lighting kerosene candles in our houses to having electricity everywhere. Um, we did that really fast um, and effectively. And now other people are trying to go down the same path uh, and and are being told they're not allowed to because of the environment when we already got to benefit from that behavior. So it's a, it's a bit of a quandary in that way. Um, but, you know, but the problem is that, that it's easy, right? And that it's a very, it's a very available, you know, form of energy and that other people are doing it because it's, you know, it's a rational economic decision for them to do so. Is there no way to capture the carbon from the plant? Mm -hmm. I don't know what you do with it. Yeah. So there, there's lots of technological innovation around this stuff, but, but, and, and this is why like the, the basic, the basic assumption that I make and the first principle value judgment that I try to make is that living in an energy abundant society is fundamentally a good thing. See, it's ironic that the our environmentalists are the problem. And I'm definitely a hypocrite here because I've been one to spout off about uh, this issue without fully doing my research. But it, it's ironic that it's the environmentalists that are causing the problem. Yeah. Well, it, it, and it's and it's it's sticking, you know, it's sticking sand in the gears of markets, right? That's the that's the problem. Like, why are the environmentalists able to have a negative impact? Is because they're able to put sand in the gears of the market that would otherwise have gravitated towards a more rational set of outcomes. Um, like, you know, why are why are the subsidies for wind uh, so dramatically large, and the subsidies for nuclear are non-existent? Why are the regulatory burdens for getting a wind plant built? so much lower than the regulatory burden for building a nuclear plant. Virtue signaling? Yeah, well, some some non-rational, non-market behavior. I mean, where, where are your blind spots, Harry? Like, sometimes we took, you know, we have a bias. Yeah. You have to defend your use of energy because you're a business base of energy. But are there any blind spots we have? Or let's say broader, as, as miners... Do we have any of our own blind spots? Should do you think we sh this is an issue we should be caring about? Because you got some. There seems to be a spectrum within Bitcoin. There are those who definitely agree. There, we have a general issue with carbon production or carbon emissions, and we should deal with it. And then we have some people like none of this fucking matters. Yeah, I, you know, I I think that I think that I'm probably not sharp enough or at least well read enough to to be able to tell you if carbon emissions are are you know going to burn up the entire planet i think that i think that we have a responsibility to the environment yeah and i think that to the degree that we are able to you know people die from from pollution mm -hmm. that is very very clear very obvious the, the lower end estimates last year were like 8 million people so globally yeah globally okay so and that's air pollution yeah Dirty water, everything? Mm -hmm. Everything. Everything, yeah. So, you know, we we need to find better ways to treat the environment that we live in and, and extract value, um, you know, from the world around us in a, in a more responsible fashion. I think that some of that is definitely, you know, we're, we're dedicated environmentalists at GRID. Okay. Um, that, but if we don't produce enough energy, that will have its own exactly. consequences. And, and that's the other piece of this, which is that, the only way that we do this stuff better is if we're able to innovate more aggressively. And I can tell you if that we have lower energy availability, innovation will fall with it. And, and that's the unacceptable case. So like, you know, to me, it's like, um, you know, the, this is the example I use all the time, which is that before 
we dug in our backyards for oil. You know, mm -hmm. before Rockefeller dug in the backyard and, and refined oil into kerosene, do you know how we lit our houses? We put people on boats to hunt whales, to kill the whales, to refine the fat, to light candles in the house. That killed a lot more people, damaged the environment in, in many other ways, was much more dangerous, and didn't produce as good a result as going, as going into our backyards and digging for oil and refining the oil into kerosene. So, you know, w when you look backwards, technology looks ridiculous. You know, what did we do before email? We put paper letters on airplanes. <laughs> and, we, and we sent them to other people. And we had a person sort those and deliver it to your house. Just like when you, when you think of all technological innovation, looking backwards, look, you look like fools. Harry, you're, you're quite a bit younger than me. I don't think you've ever written a letter. Have you ever written a letter? I have written a letter. Do you remember a time where there was no internet? I, my first memories of the internet are dial-up. Yeah. And I was probably somewhere between four and six years old. Yeah. So the internet came around when I was about 14. <laughs> so before the internet, I, I love telling these stories. Like there's two that I always say. Before the internet and mobile phones, when you agreed to meet somebody, you had to turn up on time and be at the, okay, I'm going to meet you at the top of Bedford High Street at one. You had to be there. You couldn't phone and go or text, ah, oh, I'm going to be 15 minutes late. All right, cool, I'll go and get a coffee. Or I'm, you, know, you had to be there because it's like, well, where the, where the fuck are you? <laughs> it, like, that was a real issue. You could not find someone. And the other thing was like schoolwork, you know, you just go on Wikipedia and copy that now. We used to have these things, these encyclopedias at home, like 26 books. And it's like, okay, I'm going to do a, a project on Vietnam. We'll get the V volume out, get it out. Scroll through to Vietnam. And it was all there, but they would go out of date. Like, there's so many things like that. But I, I mean, I sound like one of those old fuck. Oh, remember in my day? Like, I, I sound like an old fucker, but that genuinely, the world was a very different place. And and you're you're exactly right. And so what I what I take those, I take yeah. those examples because I think there's lots of them and I think they're really compelling. And I just try to look like maybe one or two steps forward. The idea that a central bank controls the money supply and there's no market mechanism to dictate that is like a hilarious hilarious reality that we're going to look back on and think of as just absurd. Oh, have we even said the word Bitcoin yet? We're an hour in. <laughs> we can. We can say Bitcoin. No, we'll get on to that. Okay. I'm no Armstrong. <laughs> have we covered everything in terms of any energy production, the grid, anything I've not asked? Yeah, I want to, yeah, I want to, I want to touch on one more piece, okay. which is this idea of the overproduction. Okay. And I want to just like hammer it one more time that we produce more energy than we consume. And that's a good thing. There is a, a there is room and and you know one of the mandates that we that we've defined for ourselves at Grid is that we'll know that we're succeeding when Bitcoin mining lives in between the the amount of energy that's being produced and the amount of energy that's being consumed. That space in between is where Bitcoin mining lives because we're using excess energy to produce Bitcoin. We're actually we're creating capital out of excess waste. Exactly, we yeah. are converting. We are converting. Waste literal waste into the hardest, soundest monetary asset the world has ever seen. That's a hell of a quote. And the reason the production of excess energy is super important is, I mean, I went to Venezuela. Uh, they struggled to keep the capital. Uh, the, uh, you know, they have blackouts there. They have blackouts across the country. 
you destroy productivity without power. You, it's worse. People die when there is not energy available. People die from heat. People die from cold. People die from lack of medical services. People, you know, people die from lack of uh, food availability because all the fridges spoil everything overnight. You know, the, the idea that like, energy is fundamentally integrated into our basic human quality of life. And so we need to find a way to provide that quality of life in, in true abundance, in a democratized global fashion, and then we can build really exciting businesses that unlock that. Okay. So let's move back to the Bitcoin mining thing because miners can just buy from the grid or direct, you know, whatever. Mm -hmm. But generally speaking, do, are you aware of any miners who are buying energy directly from coal plants? Do we know if it's happening? Yes. Oh, it is? Oh, it definitely is happening. Okay. Do we know what kind of scale that's happening? I, I can't begin to measure it. I think yeah. that, I think that you know, the, the basic assumption I make is that every type of energy procurement that can happen is probably happening in Bitcoin mining. Right. So just imagine a, a scenario, new regulations, all mining power sourced directly from coal plants is made illegal. There is in that. I'm not saying I'm not advocating for this, but I'm just saying in that moment there is no energy argument against Bitcoin because they're either buying it from the market, or they're buying it directly from uh, renewables or nuclear. But in that scenario, we're we're separating Bitcoin mining from every other industry and treating it differently. Yeah, I you know I, I don't I don't think that that is the way to go. No. I think that I think that the frame is wrong. That that. You know, Bitcoin is a new type of bidder in the energy market auction. Okay. We're a new, we're just a new participant who has a, a little bit of a different profile um, or a lot of bit of a different profile than most of the other folks who are there. And to the degree that we are able to, um, to negotiate the, the ability to purchase energy, you know, I think we should have the ability to do that, you know, any way that we, any way that the market allows, I think that, you know, we're going to see regulation. We're already, we're already seeing regulation around, you know, around emission standards and, and, and all these different things. Um, the Bitcoin miner has the opportunity to develop the most competitive and most exciting consumption profile. And, you know, I, I think that the, you know, the, the thing we need to get the, the critics on board with is that we do something exciting and valuable for energy markets. And, and let's start there. So, so the whole energy argument is a, is a nothing burger. The whole energy argument is... Against mining. Yeah, against mining is like, it just kind of doesn't make sense. It doesn't take into account like the truth of how these energy markets work. It doesn't take into account the physics and the engineering of, of how the energy is produced. Um, and it doesn't take into account the economic reality that we are always seeking out lower cost power. And therefore, we are always looking for, for excess and stranded because it's the stuff that people can't sell otherwise. So they'll be able to give us a better price. So, so we're doing a bad job of PRing ourselves? Yes. So should we, I don't know, create some kind of council? Uh. Yeah, yeah. You know, I, you knew I was going to ask you about this. Come yeah. On. Okay. Were you invited to that? I was not part of those discussions. You weren't. Was your company? Grid was not part of that discussion. Rejected or not invited? We were not invited. Okay. That's interesting. M my understanding, and, and listen, you know, uh, 
there have been attempts to create governing bodies in, in Bitcoin for I know, longer than I've been here. They always fail. They always fail. Um, you know, to the, to the extent that the initiative of that group is to produce a, a data disclosure standard. Great. Go for it. Yeah. When they try to tell people that you got to do X, Y, and Z to be a participant, and it becomes it becomes you know a compliance mechanism, um, I start to get uncomfortable. Bitcoin is an opt-in uh, network. If a group you know if a group wants to wants to you know try to tell others how to behave, um, you know I think that that's ultimately you know a bit of a futile endeavor. But I think to the degree that their mission is to you know bring about you know reliable and and um, transparent data you know, all for it. So disband the council, but carry on with the initiative of creating data disclosure, fine. Data disclosures are fine. We, you know, we would, we would welcome participating in that. We think that, we think that we've got a really compelling energy blend, frankly. So in terms of your business then, looking five years ahead, what are you seeing? Are you seeing that you're going to be migrating to, and there's an additional question with this, but say that excess energy does that require you to create certain size mines, like a certain number of ASICs, if you're just buying the excess? Um, it's, a, it's a really good And also, question. is there a risk there in that suddenly if that you're buying the excess, but suddenly that place needs that power, they you're the last, you don't get it? Yeah. So there, those are both, those are both very good questions. The first is that we try to size, we try to size our operations relative to the existing infrastructure. Sorry. Sorry to interrupt you. Another quick question there. If you're buying excess, that means you get it cheaper. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You're, yeah, okay. Depending on where the excess yeah, is. So yeah. not every market enables, you know, uh, liquid bidding on the, on the power itself. Sometimes, you know, sometimes what excess means is there's, there's, an, energy, there's an energy producer and a community that's been consuming that energy. And that, you know, and let's just say lots of people leave. We'll be able to sign a relatively short-term contract. So, so in energy world, that means like five years, okay. three years, five years. Um, we'll sign, you know, a shorter-term contract like that, and we'll be there. And then in five years, we reassess, and if that energy still looks like it's excess, we'll sign. We'll we'll, we'll re-up. If it looks like the the energy blend for the region is changing, you know, the great thing about ASICs is you can move them, or if they're obsolete. You know, you'll build something new somewhere else. So, you know, so we we really treat this as a as a we're a more you know we're we're a more liquid buyer, which means let's say five year increments rather than twenty year increments, and so that produces you know four times as much liquidity in those energy markets. Right. Okay. What else? What else? So obviously that's the area you're super interested in. Mm-hmm. We should be aware of that. We should PR that that you know, Bitcoin miners can be the the buyer of last resort for energy. Okay. Continuous bid. Continuous bid. What else? What else is happening? So the other thing that we're super focused on is co-location. Okay. We we think that co-locating with um with the energy generator is is this hugely exciting place for this um for this Bitcoin mining market to develop because number one, we save we immediately save them the 30% loss of sending the energy far away. Okay. So every unit that we buy has a 30% markup on it because you got to sell 30% more because we consumed it on site. Okay. Um, so there's a physics argument. The second is that um, those, ener- those energy so- you know, sites are, so- are, are designed to be too big. They have to be too big for us to, you know, to provide the type of, of con- you know, consumption that, 
that we as a society are accustomed to at this point. And so we are able to, to develop much more flexible contracts. So with them, we'll literally spin it up and down and we'll design the contract to be able to account for that and do, and do the pricing negotiation based on the levels of flexibility that they're looking to achieve. Great. And is, is there anything else or is, is that the two main prongs? In five years, if I've accomplished those two at the scale that, that we as a team are envisioning, it'll be an awesome five years and we're going to have the same conversation about the next things. Well, I think the thing is, it's quite obvious, is that people just don't understand the energy market. Yes. I mean, I, I clearly didn't. I've learned a little bit the other day when we had the beefsteak and now I get it. It just kind of makes sense. I understand what's going on. I now understand where the opportunity is for you guys to lower price because that's what you want to do. That co-location sounds obviously incredible. It seems to me your problem these days is the bottleneck of ASICs. Yeah, there's there's a number of challenges in, and, and you know, ASICs is one piece of it, but you know, supply chains right now are pretty challenging. Is that COVID related issues? I think in part. I think yeah. I think that in part, you know, COVID really sort of enacted a big shock in those markets in you know Q basically Q2 Q3 of 20 and we're feeling the the maybe the second ripple of that shock now um the first time we recognized that shock it was like actual supply availability like things you know the system seized up this time it's around raw materials and the unavailability like you know things like copper steel lumber like all of those commodity prices are are going through the absolute roof. Um, and so right now the effect is is really around um, like the raw inputs and less around like shipping. Well, we're very quick to blame inflation, but some also some of this issue is a supply shock from you know, markets reopening up, communities reopening up. 100%. You know, so, so the lumber thing, uh, Lynn, I spoke to Lynn Alden, she said the main issue is with sawmills that have closed down. I, I could not agree more. But we're very quick. Oh, lumber's up, inflation's here, buy Bitcoin. And I think, yeah, we have to the, take a step back. The only time. thing I agree with is the buy Bitcoin. Yeah, well, of course <laughs> you do. Of course you do. Is there any, I've got a few other things I want to ask you. Is, is there anything we've not covered in mining that you would like to cover here? Um, yeah, I think one one thing in mining that I always try to talk about is just that it's, um, it's really a blue-collar business. Uh-huh. Like, you know, there's there's a lot less Silicon Valley in in our in our business than there is like steel mill. You know, we love we love hiring out of the armed services. So a lot of our technicians um came straight from the Air Force and we're gonna be continuing that initiative. So we love we love making Bitcoin mining a hub for you know post-armed service careers. Um, and and we think that you know we think that we built a culture and a community of of operators that fits in really you know tightly with that mission. But you know we're we're bricks and sticks. We hire contractors and engineers. We build stuff. You know we love we love that the the physical backbone of the Bitcoin network lives uh, on our servers. Um, and so that that we take the mission within Bitcoin that that we are the we are the 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 touch point in between the digital world of value and the physical world of securing that value like that intersection is where we live um it's critically important and we take it extremely seriously um and and like that's what that's what gets me so excited about about being a miner and rather than being a an exchange operator or, you know financial services per you know all these other things that that I'd thought about when I was looking to join the industry full time you know those were all exciting opportunities too but like getting out into the hot sun and hearing the ASIC sound, like that's different. 
Well, I, I just like the opportunity of smaller nations looking at the opportunity with mining, getting into mining. You know, we talked about El Salvador beforehand. You know, there's certain things we know that are changing in that country that might make it more attractive to to mine there. I, I don't know about the issue with with the heat, how much that impacts things, but I just kind of like the idea of a country like El Salvador open up and giving companies like you an incentive to at least go and look there and just consider it. We will absolutely look and consider every jurisdiction. We're not in the business of saying no. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and you know, the, the way that we think about that is that, you know, Bitcoin mining represents revenue equality. So in the past, you know, the reason why we send manufacturing elsewhere is because labor is cheap, uh-huh. right? We're outsourcing cheap labor. What Bic- and, and the reason we're able to do that is because the dollar has a, a you know, significant dominant settlement position in the inter- international currency game. Um, with Bitcoin, if, I'm, if I put one hash onto the network in the U.S. and I put one hash into the network in any other country on Earth, those hashes are equal to each other on a revenue basis. That's exciting. Yeah, it's, it's, it's incredible. I, I, I'm, I don't know enough about mining. Um, it's really interesting how at the same time it's got this lens on it from and the environmentalists and the shoddy journalists but at the same time, it's becoming one of the most interesting parts of Bitcoin. In having to tell its own story, it is becoming exciting. Yeah, I mean, I you know, I I always say like I'm you know I just I just plug machines in, man. No, you don't, dude. Come on, <laughs> you do more than that. Well, listen, I can't finish without having a couple of other questions for you because I just love hearing you rant about Bitcoin. But tell me why you're so bullish. Just give me give me the Harry rant. Yeah. Uh, so the world around, like, I, I think, if you've seen Inception, the movie? Of course, man. So there's the scene in Inception where the bus has driven over the bridge and everybody's sitting in their seats and they're asleep and they're in the dream and they're living in this, this alternate reality. The, the Bitcoin story has driven over the bridge and we're living on a planet full of people still asleep in the van. And... And we're seeing the change and the adoption and the just the just the value um, that this network brings to people explode. You know, I I, I can't stop thinking about what Jack Mallers did uh, bringing strike into the world. Um, I think that you know, similar to energy markets, remittances is this like totally misunderstood thing that there are you know incredibly brave and passionate family people who are soldiers of fortune, who have left everything to go to another place to change their economic future. And the way that they change their economic future and provide an opportunity to their family that they've left behind is to send money through a Western union that's going to cut 30%, 40% or more out of the work that that person has done when they try to send that home. And that it's a racket. It's a it's a it's worse. It's it's so much worse. It is it is pure extraction. It is it is international geopolitical extraction, corporate extraction from the hardest working, bravest people who make the hardest choices to provide for their families. And so, you know, Bitcoin saves people's time and saves people's lives. It gives them access to a quality of life that is otherwise unattainable. And it's able to do that because of a true technological advancement. 
the value proposition that Bitcoin represents is that there are 21 million of these things, and when I send one, I can't get it back. Those are foundational value propositions that we, the miners, will do our damnedest to secure. Our job is to, is to hash the transactions, compile the block, and make sure that the that the the two proper those two properties are carried forward block by block by block. But those are simple properties. But what they what they offer to people and what they do for people is that it offers an opportunity to not be bled dry, to not have their time be stolen, to not have you know onerous regulation dropped upon them by fiat. the the freedom and the empowerment that is made available, you know, looks ridiculous and looks crazy, but it's going to be the same thing as putting people on boats to go find, you know, to find whales to hunt for oil or to put a letter on a plane to send it. It's going to look so absurd that we did these things in the past. Um, and, And the demand for Bitcoin is just going to be the beneficiary there. You know, from a totally selfish perspective, you know, let's get these transaction fees moving. I'm trying to mine those, but, you know, but the, and, you know, people say like, what, you know, what can I do to get involved in Bitcoin? Build something useful. You've got this amazing tool, you know, put your, you know, put your human ingenuity to work. This is a call to action. Anybody listening to this, if you are curious about Bitcoin or thinking that maybe this is something that could be for you or could be exciting, think about the creative ways to make it useful to people and go build that. Um, because there's definitely people who are who are hungry to fund you to, to find ways, you know, to contribute code if it's an open source project, to contribute time, uh, or or even just you know signal boost you and retweet you or whatever. This is the most exciting technological breakthrough that has that has happened certainly in my lifetime, and I've lived through the beginning of the internet. Um, but the idea that we can make people fully sovereign and empowered when with regard to their money, it just does so much. Well, you just delivered there, then. <laughs> and one other thing. What about, because I know, I know you're going to give me a solid answer. What about these other people like, yeah, but Ethereum's interesting. You know, it, it allows me to build dApps. DeFi is cool. Should I look at that as well? Change your time preference. It does those things. It's probably easier to build a dApp on Ethereum today than it is to build one on Bitcoin, just from a pure sort of coding it up perspective. Um, but, you know, Ethereum is playing a corporate game. Bitcoin is playing a national game, right? So Bit- Bitcoin is trying to compete on the global stage at the highest level. Ethereum is, you know, trying to outcompete, you know, corporate interest and decentralize some some sort of lower level, uh, lower level things. Whether they're going to be able to do that successfully or not, you know, we'll see. My my opinion is that, you know, that's not where the exciting stuff is happening because, you know, it's fundamentally playing, you know, within, within the fiat boundaries. It's a fiat game. Um, you know, if you're, if you're working on the, those kinds of projects, you're still living within the minds of the people in the van. You're not trying to wake up in the van and swim out of the water. So, it, it's a different thing. Um, you know, it, it works for lots of people. I, I don't recommend it. Uh, it doesn't work for me. It's not where I voted with my career, my time, my dollars, and my hope for the future. But uh, but that's just me. So glad I got you on the show. It's been long overdue, dude. 
Any any final comments? Anything you want to say? Leave with our listeners. Well, I'm 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 pretty available on Twitter. I know. So you. you know, I'd love I'd love for if people have more questions about mining or think that I totally missed the mark or anything. You know, Bitcoin's about iron sharpening iron. Um, and so I love I love engaging on this stuff. I think that you know, mining doesn't have the megaphone that it needs yet, um, and that certainly isn't me because Bitcoin isn't any one person. Um, but I I am you know. A, endlessly grateful to Satoshi for giving us this beautiful thing, um, and B, just endlessly grateful to the, the broader Bitcoin, I hesitate to say community, but but you ragtag pirates. Yeah. Uh, and just, you know, I, I've, I have the opportunity of my life, you know, ahead of me, and, and it just, I just couldn't be more grateful and, and more excited for the future. Well, I'm grateful for you, brother. Um, where do they find you? Harry underscore Sudok on Twitter, S-U-D-O-C-K. I'll stick it in the show notes. And you should link me up with a nuclear guy. Oh, you do a great episode with him. When we come back, we'll go and visit a plant. Yeah. Maybe we'll record from the plant. Record from the plant with with a bottle of whiskey. Yeah, or two. Dude, dude. (laughs) listen, I love you, man. Appreciate you. Keep doing your shit. Thanks for coming on the show. I'm always here for you if you need anything. You know that. Likewise. All right, man. Appreciate it, Cheers. Cheers. Right, come on. How good is Harry? He's such a great speaker on Bitcoin and the energy sector. And I was also lucky to grab a couple of stakes with him while I was away and just go into this conversation deeper. I really hope Harry's profile increases. He's such a good speaker on the subject. Now, I've known him for a while. We met a couple of years ago. We stayed in touch. And listen, I think he killed it on this one. So also check out the show notes, check out his links, make sure you go and follow Harry. I've been kicking him. I've been saying, dude, You need to get a bit more active on Twitter. You need to be sharing your stuff. You need to be writing threads. You need to be educating people the way you educate me every time I see you. So massive thanks to Harry. Appreciate his time here to teach me about the energy sector and how it works. And funnily enough, we did miss one thing out. We missed volcano mining. How funny is that? Well, that's because the conversation happened before then. Anyway, I hope we cleared some things up for you. Let me know. You can jump into my WBD Telegram channel or hit me up on hello at whatbitcoindid.com. If you want to support the show, please do head over to Apple Podcasts and leave me a review. I hope you like the show enough to give it five stars. If you do, that would be pretty cool. Outside of that, I am still in El Salvador for a few more days and then I'm going to be heading back to London. I've been away for a long time. missing my kids. need to get back and see them, but I will be back here soon. All right, have a great rest of your week and I will see you all on Friday.